welcome to the Drunken Fan Podcast. This is going to be the maiden voyage of hopefully of a lot of voyages that we have where we're just going to be discussing whatever has happened in the last week of sports in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. My name is Cameron Massey. That's a great intro. My name is Mal. Yes. Okay. Thank you very you much. You don't get my last name. I like Cher. It, it's just Mal. For, just Mal. Well, it's a sports podcast, dude. Like, that's fine. That's fine. So here's how we're going to do it is depending on what season it is, we're going to have a specific order that we're going to be talking about the different teams around the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area. So what we're going to do first is we're going to start talking about the Dallas Cowboys since that is the primary sport that does take precedence in the area and as a hockey fan and you a baseball fan we even still acknowledge that football holds or has a stranglehold on that area and it's well, ridiculous to think otherwise well we're both still football fans but like i don't care about the nfl and you're a packers fan so yeah but i can still t- and just because i'm a packers fan does not mean that i can not it doesn't mean that i won't be able to discuss the cowboys Intelligently, especially now considering who their head coach is. And that's a good segue, I would say, into what uh, the main topic is going to be about the Cowboys. And that's going to be the hiring of Mike McCarthy. I know that we are a little bit behind the curve here because this happened months and months ago, but this is our first time to ever kind of voice our opinions on the matter. So as a Packers fan, I can tell you that Cowboys fans are going to love Mike McCarthy for about seven weeks. And then about week eight is whenever the offense is going to be the same thing that it always was whenever he was in Green Bay because, and oh, and now he doesn't have a quarterback to the caliber of Aaron Rodgers because whether or not you, whether or not you love or hate the guy, the dude is probably the best quarterback to be playing in the game right now. With Patrick Mahomes being a possible um, replacement for him, but he had his one year, and we'll see what happens there. So now it's going to be... I mean, be- you can't really say Mahomes had one year. He's had a couple good years, but I will give you that Aaron Rodgers is probably, talent-wise, talent-wise, probably the best quarterback, like, maybe ever, but... And Mike McCarthy only won one Super Bowl with him. And the reason why, and I know this isn't a Packers podcast, but there, it, it brings in context, where Mike McCarthy... He's the one that was going around trying to take credit for how great that offense was for Green Bay in 2011. And Aaron Rodgers is on his side trying to say that he was the reason why that offense was so great in 2011. And that's why there was always this animosity between the two is because one person was saying one thing and the other person was saying the other. And in the end, the Packers are going to choose Aaron Rodgers over Mike McCarthy, and that's just that's just a given. So what does Mike McCarthy bring to a team that is a that quite frankly is a better team built to run rather than built to throw? Because that's all Mike McCarthy ever focused on was throwing. And can he bring that same run uh, that same high caliber passing offense with a quarterback that's not up to par with the quarterback but, that he did have before. I mean, uh, Dak Prescott did lead the leave ah, lead the league in passing yards through like the first 13 weeks last year. So you can't really can't necessarily say that they're only built to run. They are primarily built to run, but Dak can still 
hurt you. Uh, you know, Amari Amari Cooper could still hurt you now that they have C.D. Lamb. Who knows? I mean, we don't really know what he, what we're gonna get with him. You know, but he's he's athletic. You know, he might he might be the next guy. So you don't you can't necessarily say that they're only going to be a running team. It's just given the contract. If you don't give Zeke the ball. Uh, you're not going to last very long. Do you think, though, that the only reason why that they drafted C.D. Lamb is because of the coach that they knew that they were going to be bringing into the team? They'd already, they'd already, they'd already hired Mike McCarthy by then. So they go and they draft a wide receiver to help out Dak Prescott. Probably. And even still, you've got this team that's built to run because that's all the Cowboys fans, all Cowboys fans like to talk about is how good their offensive line is, and it is that good. And that's part. That's that's a big reason why Ezekiel Elliott has had such a great career, mm-hmm. longer than a typical running back's shelf life is. Like Zeke mm-hmm. is still able to produce the numbers that he's producing behind this great offensive line. And I don't care what team you are and who you have at quarterback or at running back, unless your name is Barry Sanders, you have to have a great offensive line in front of you. So the the threat of the run is going to be enough to open up the passing game, yeah. which it's set up for Dak Prescott. The question is, is can he can Dak Prescott really deliver now that Mike McCarthy is pre- the, the hiring of Mike McCarthy is ownership pretty much saying, hey, Dak, we're trying to make you into this all star caliber quarterback that we know that you can be. And can Dak Prescott take that next step? Yeah, I see that. I mean, I think it's. I don't know. I think I think the Cowboys' problem last year and for the past, geez, almost a decade has been play calling. Like, I know people are like, "Well, you can't really." I mean, I say this too. the The main problem is Jerry Jones, but on the field, their main on the field problem is play calling, and it has been for years now. So, the question to me isn't necessarily is Mike McCarthy going to be able to get all-star caliber play out of Dak Prescott. The question is going to be, is the offensive coordinator going to be able to call the plays that need to be called? Mike McCarthy is going to be calling the plays. Like, that's just, that's the way that he does it. He had an offensive coordinator in Green Bay for a little bit, but then he ended up taking over the head coaching and offensive coordinator position. But, I mean, he felt like he had to, right? Yeah, well, it's it, he felt like he had to, but not even just that. He felt like that he deserved that. And he it really limited the Packers' offense to do everything that they probably could have while Aaron Rodgers was in his prime. And the main example of that is in 2011, whenever Aaron Rodgers had the freedom to audible and change plays if he wanted to. And then Mike McCarthy started to kind of take that away from him. And then that's why that they, they struggled there for a little bit. And it's, it was, it was and, and Packers fans all over the world were crying for Mike McCarthy to be fired. The difference between the Packers and the Cowboys is they actually fired their head coach. Like they looked at something and was like, this is something that is not working. It has not worked since 2011. Mm-hmm. We need to move on. And they bring in Matt LaFleur and a team that, was very mediocre at best at wide receiver, ended up making it to the NFC Championship game. And Aaron Rodgers had such a low, low career numbers-wise than he ever has had in, in, since since he was a rookie. Not a rookie, because but his first start in his first year at Green Bay because they changed up everything and became a run first, and Aaron Jones really took over that offense, and Aaron Rodgers was just kind of there. Now, see, it ended up 
hurting them in the long run because they got demolished by the 49ers. But see, now the problem is, is that with Mike McCarthy is that he calls the same plays over and over and over again, and it works, it works, it works, until it doesn't, and then the guy doesn't adapt. So you pretty much have Jason Garrett with a ring now, and you only have that ring because you could argue it was Aaron Rodgers, or it might have been Mike McCarthy, who knows, because now Aaron Rodgers is not really doing as well without Mike McCarthy, so who knows? Is it it age, Mm -hmm. or is it the coaching that changed things, and it doesn't matter? It's like Tom Brady going to Tampa isn't going to prove anything when Tampa sucks, because they're not going to be good. They're not going to be good, but anyway. and It's not going to prove anything, because A, the the Patriots went from Tom Brady to Cam Newton, and... And we'll have to wait and see how that one plays out in the regular season. You'll have to wait and see how that one plays out, but Tom Brady going to Tampa Bay is not going to work. Well, and see... And I'll eat my words if I have to, but, like, if he wanted to prove... If you you want to argue if if it's going to be, you know, who's best, then you have to leave at at a certain point. You can't just stay with your coach or your quarterback. And that's what I'm saying with Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers. It's kind of hard to oh, say at this point. Oh, you know he's he's wanting to do this to shove this right back in the Packers' face. And, and if you don't believe that, the one, his first press conference, he came out and said that Des Bryant caught the ball, which he did. Yeah. He did, but as like the loyalty that you show to your organization, you don't come out and say that. But he felt he well, felt wasn't slighted. His, he wasn't felt his slighted by the Packers. Anymore. Well, but it, but still, like the loyalty, they named a street after him in Green Bay, and you come out like you don't ever say that. Like you don't, whether it's true or not, you come up and you just be like, "That was a great game," and I hate that it came down to the call on the field or whether it was a catch or no catch, but. Mike McCarthy is really the primary storyline here because really other than drafting uh what's CB Marshall? C D Lamb. C D Lamb, whatever. <laughs> I don't I like like I said, like I, I just said I was trying to discuss it intelligently. I can't even name the receiver that they drafted. <laughs> C D Lamb. Uh other than that, this is the same team that's coming back from last year. Uh, just the difference is is no Jason Garrett. And that was always well, the problem. The defense so, is going to look a little different too. Well, we'll we'll see we'll see what happens this year because it's going to be really really exciting to see where the Cowboys go because it's that first year without Jason Garrett. This is all anybody ever wanted. New coach smell and the new Cowboys coach, yes. Cowboys root like always over overperform with new coach smell. They did it with Wade Phillips. They did it with Jason Garrett. They did it with, with Barry Switzer. Barry Switzer. They did it with uh, Bill Parcells. They did it with uh, Jimmy Johnson. Freaking cha- no, Jimmy Johnson. No, no, no. no that's right. They went. Two and fourteen, his first year. Or something, yeah, and right? then they then they won everything. Yeah, yeah, then they went. Yeah, but they did it with freaking Chan Gailey, Dave Campo. Like they they just you know the Cowboys are going to win 11, 12 games every almost every time they have a new coach. It's 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 like clockwork, but they just never fire their coach for some reason. So, kind of going into the draft pick here is that the the other real interesting thing that we can talk about is the wearing of number 88. Yeah, apparent apparently now it's it's the Jerry Jones has come out and said that it's uh it's a tradition now for the best receiver basically to wear 88, which at this point Jerry Jones is just he's going to Jerry Jones, but I always viewed it as <clears throat> 88 was not necessarily a tradition of best receivers, but receivers honoring the previous receiver who wore that number, like Drew Pearson, Michael Irvin, Des Bryant. And now it seems that's the timer. It seems that uh, Jerry Jones has decided that the best receiver on the team wearing 88 is the tradition. So anyway, that's that's our time. Here's the here's (laughs) here's the way here's the way that I see that is 
I actually kind of like that idea. Number one, it's it's new. No other team does this. Like it, 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 they, most teams view sacred numbers and tie it to individual players. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that this new thing is going to make everyone forget that Michael Irvin wore number 88. Like, of course, you're going to number 88 with the Cowboys is going to be synonymous with Michael Irvin at least for now. Mm-hmm. But going forward, it's kind of like it's the opposite of retiring a it, number. It, it seems like that it's kind of like putting that C on a hockey player like not necessarily but like it's like like that the c is synonymous with someone in the nhl of the leader of the team like it's if you're gonna if you're gonna blame someone for anything if you want like a central focus player to blame blame something on it it's the player that wears the c it's the captain it's the leader and this is a nice little change of pace i don't i don't see why this could hurt the organization at all if anything it's going to stand out and it's going to be a point of pride now where it's no longer like oh 88 is untouchable now it's like if you're wearing 88 you're our guy and we're telling the world this is our guy whenever it comes to the wide receiver group and it it it's whether that puts a lot of pressure on someone or not is yet to be determined but i think it could be nothing but a good thing like the 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 reward far out, outweighs the risk what's the risk people being like how could you do that that's that like how could you change things just to change them and it, like and that's not a good argument if anything this is this is changing things for the good because now you're putting not just the quarterback in charge of the offense but now you're kind of like having like a 1a and a 1b thing well i i mean i agree but when you say what's the risk the risk is when you give it to somebody who hasn't come in and earned it necessarily you're giving it to them out of the gate and saying no you're gonna wear 88 which is what's happening with cd lamb i don't have a problem if he comes out and he starts lighting the world on fire and they say no you're an 88 like we're gonna give it to you you know what i mean i, I don't have a problem with that but we need to move on because we're already over our time. Buddy. It's it's fine. We'll we'll still we'll we can still keep talking about this, and this will be something that'll be yet to be determined. With it, we're just purely speculating. But yeah. that's that's why I like this idea because it's something new. Whether mm-hmm. the kid has earned it or not is regard like that that doesn't mean shit because uh, Connor McDavid came in and they gave him the C almost immediately in Edmonton. Did he earn it? No. But has he has he earned it now? Yes, of course. Yeah, like the like ever since Sidney Crosby, it was the same thing. Sidney Crosby came up with the Penguins, and then the captain used to be like the veteran, the wily veteran of the team, and the one that's going to really show the leadership. Now it's not necessarily who's the veteran on the team; it's who's the best player. Because whenever Jamie Ben got the got the C on his sweater, uh, he was it, that was in 2013, 2012, or twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen. Whenever he got the C, and he, he was still a young kid back then and he has earned that spot going forward but pretty much what that is saying is like this is our guy moving forward and that's kind of what the cowboys are doing now and i i I don't see why that would be such a bad thing i don't i'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing i'm I'm just saying it's kind of risky i like the idea of course i like the idea of giving it to somebody who's earned it but i don't know football seems to be more difficult to predict than than hockey like with somebody that's a home run like Connor McDavid or, you know, Sidney Crosby or, or guys like that. You know what I mean? Like then giving them the C and then fine, whatever that would be like, that would be like drafting Sidney Crosby and where and been like, all right, you're wearing 99. Like, Oh no. Yeah. You see like the nines, like that's, that's a different thing. Like, but, but I get what I like. The number is, the number is a different thing whenever it comes to and so i get that but i just i just like that the the cowboys are making this change they're kind of saying like well we're going against the grain and i'm always for that as long as it makes sense and this sounds like it makes sense to me 
Sure. Okay. So to end that out real quick, Cowboys prediction. I just just do they make the playoffs or no? We're not going to get into the whole prediction. Yes, I, yes, yes, I do. And the only reason why I would say the same thing if J, like this year, if Jason Garrett was the head coach, I would still say yes because the talent on that team is astronomical. It's, ridiculous. it's fucking insane it's how ridiculous. good this team should be. How many Pro Bowlers do you need? <laughs> Dude, I know. And you finish eight and eight because you've got this. You've you've your coaching you're was always eighty eight. That's the you're so obsessed with eighty eight. <laughs> you're gonna finish eight and eight. That's how if much we, we that's we how much we love this number if we don't have an 88 on the team we're gonna we're gonna finish we're gonna eight. make an 88 on we're this all team 88. god damn it i'm telling you we are all 88s together guys <laughs> so no no prediction yet on a record but they have to make the playoffs like you make this move bring in mike mccarthy who does have a ring if he's jason garrett with a ring at least he's got the ring and that's one of the most important things is whether or not you have at least one Super Bowl win, unless you're Brett Favre, then one Super Bowl win's not enough. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Whenever it comes to this head coach, I think that he's going to bring in enough spark, and I think the offense is going to be good enough that they're finally going to get over that hump, and they're going to finish with enough wins to win the NFC least and uh, oh, get into the playoffs. Blow. Well, you like it's how are you a mediocre team in the NFC East with all that talent? So, yes, <laughs> right now we're not making any predictions on wins and losses, but yes, I would definitely predict that they make the playoffs. They have to. They have to. Yeah, okay. Speaking of playoffs, though, let's go ahead and switch on over to the Mavs. I've got some uh, interesting things here. Before we get into stroking off Luka Doncic, which we absolutely should because he has earned every single stroke of our of our hands, and we're going to be double fisting this dude for a long time. But oh, too far. We'll be getting we'll be getting there in a second. Let's get to the first person that's ever really grabbed my heart, and we'll talk about Dirk possibly going to the Nets. Uh, what? Steve Nash was hired as the Nets head coach on September third. Well, I knew that, and he. Before he even received the offer, he knew that he was going to have some sort of role with the Nets organization going forward. And the first phone call that he had that he made was to Dirk Nowitzki because they they were teammates in 1998, and uh, they draft they they drafted Dirk or they traded up to get Dirk, and then they signed Steve Nash as an unrestricted free agent and. Uh, uh, from the Phoenix Suns, and until 2004, whenever Steve Nash went back there, they still maintained a really good friendship. And so Steve Nash calls up Dirk and says, "Hey, I'm going to be the head coach. I want you to be an assistant. Like, how insane would that be to be on the Brooklyn Nets and be playing for two first ballot Hall of Famers? Have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Here's the bad news for the Brooklyn Nets fans. Dirk said no. So he said he said he's not ready to make a transition back into basketball because he just retired yeah. and he's going to enjoy retirement. He said that he ate ice cream every single day for like the first 6 months that he retired, <laughs> put on so much weight. It was weird to see Dirk chunky. Like it just it was funny to see those pictures. So Ch- Chunky Dirk. Chunky Dirk, man. Ooh. That's that needs to be an ice cream. We need to talk to we need to talk to Ben and Jerry's and just be like, "Hey, Chunky Dirk, let's get on it, man. He ate ice cream for ever so let's let's get that sponsorship going but um it's like it, german chocolate ice mm, cream <laughs> the chunky dirt. wouldn't that be great let's i think we've got an idea here so <laughs> but let's let's go ahead and let's let's talk about this dallas mavericks team that got bounced in the first round of the playoffs it was the the thing that i thought of is the thing that everyone talks about right now is luka Doncic, obviously but the main thing that they talk about is that buzzer beater that he hit in game three 
as soon as I saw it, it was very Vince Carter esque. It was that it was the 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 that, 2017 playoffs oh, yeah. whenever Vince Carter yeah, hit that hit buzzer that beater. One. First of all, I was at that game. It was the most amazing professional sporting event that I've ever been to in my life, and it was just so much fun to be a part of that. But just like in 2017, Luca hits the game winner in Game Three, goes up two one, and then they proceed to lose the next three games and gets back and get bounced in six. So where does that leave this team? And that makes you think that this was an ineffective playoff run for them because they couldn't do anything more. What this has done is, is it's put Luka Doncic on the map. Everyone knew who Luka was, but he never really got his chance to play on a national level every single night like LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, any of those guys. So now that he's consistently got his... Uh, that he's got his national recognition. recognition. I think that a lot of players are going to want to be interested in playing with him. Here's the thing, though. This team got some numbers for you. So here's Lucas' numbers in the playoffs. He averaged 31 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists. That's almost a triple-double in the playoffs. You think that's nuts? Just to show how consistent this man is, here was his season numbers. 28.7 points, 9.3 rebounds, and 8.7 assists. <sighs> Those are those are numbers that not even Michael Jordan even averaged this early in his career in the league. And I'm not saying that he's the next MJ. And, no, I, yeah, I, and I hate no. to make those predictions for anyone because there will be another. There will never be another Michael Jordan. Right. But Luka Doncic, he did all this without Przingis because he got injured in Game One, and without Dwight Powell, who didn't even play in the playoffs this year. Uh, and Porzingis, he he sat for 20 months with a torn ACL. Uh, before all of this, and then he ruptures his meniscus. So the dude is obviously very injury prone. So we're not looking for someone like him to be able to do a whole lot of jumping, and which is fine because he can pretty much just dunk it without He's seven foot. <laughs> but see, but here's here's how much that here's how much they missed him though in the playoffs is that he averaged uh, to start the season. He started slowly after he sat for a little bit. He he was fifteen point eight points. Per game on 37% shooting in November. Come February, he was 25.2 points and 48.3% from shooting in in February. So that means that he had to find his game. What changed? The Mavs offense is what changed. They had 116, they averaged 116.7 points this year. And that's number one in NBA history. In NBA history, on who was uh, like in offensive production, <clears throat> the team that was behind them was the seventy-three and nine Golden State Warriors at one hundred and fifteen point nine. The numbers that's that's one and two. Well, if you take the Golden State Warriors and their difference between the number ten team of all time, it's the same difference that the Mavs are ahead of them at number one. Like that's insane how good this team is. The big difference was it was Tim Hardaway Jr. became a starter in mid-November. And he averaged 15.8 points and 43.7% from the floor. And that's ridiculous shooting that's yeah. shooting numbers. And that changed everything because it allowed because he's more of a catch and shoot kind mm-hmm. of guard rather than shooting off the dribble. And that's something that right. really so you have to you have to guard him when he doesn't have the ball. And that opens up lanes for Przingis. Because and Luca too. And what they do is the Mavs were very before they got Porzingis and Luka Doncic, they were very reliant on the pick and roll. That's why that they had they had offensive centers like uh uh Tyson Chandler 
let me see here, where is it? Tyson Chandler, Braden Wright, or Dwight Powell. A lot of people forget that Dwight Powell also played center before they got Porzingis, and they very much relied on the pick and roll. Mm-hmm. But they uh, now it opens up a lot more options for them, and Chris and uh, Christoph Porzingis can shoot more shots from the elbow as opposed to having to drive the lane and risk injuring his knee again because they do a lot of switching whenever they do picks now so now the pick and roll is gone because if they're going to switch then there's that mismatch with poor zingas um just real just real quick if you want to if you want to talk about like crazy numbers you want to talk about seth curry shoots 44.3 percent from threes at 3.9 shots per game He's he stepped outside of his brother's shadow, and he has established that he is just as much of a threat as a three pointer as a three point shooter, just like his brother. So he leads the team. Are you saying he's as good of a three point shooter as? I'm his not brother? saying that he's as good, but he stepped outside of his shadow. Okay, gotcha. like it's, he's, not, he's solidified himself. It's as it's a, not just it's as not just a, somebody as with the last a name shooter, Curry. Yeah. As a shooter yeah. on his own, the gotcha. dude can shoot. He, and here's the starting five three points. Uh, the numbers for the season. Believe it or not, Luka Doncic is last at 31.8. Porzingis shoots better from three-pointers than Luka Doncic at 34.9. Dorian Vinny-Smith shoots 37.4. Tim Hardaway Jr., 40.7. And and uh, Seth Curry shoots 45.3. So the, the problem here with the Mavs is not their offense. The number one offense in NBA history, but yet... They still finish seventh in the West. So what's wrong? Obviously, it's their defense. Because, but here's going to say special teams. Special teams. <laughs> they don't go long-handed. <laughs> so here are here are the potential free agents that the Mavs can sign. Not this year, but next year. Whenever there's a plethora of the, you got Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James, Anthony Davis, all threats that would be good for the Mavs. But not necessarily, like, I don't think that they really stand a chance of, to really land kind of someone dreams. like that. Absolutely. <clears throat> so here are some that I would actually keep in mind, and I would I would be interested in really giving these guys a good look. Paul George, because he can play defense. Top mm-hmm. three in MVP voting and Defensive Player of the Year two times, and no other player has done that except for Michael Jordan. So that's huge. Uh, Jeru Holiday from the Pelicans is another really good defensive player that can kind of go under the radar that I think that the Mavs could steal. They'll, they'll still have to pay him, but right. I think that yeah. they can steal him from the market And because a lot of people are going to be creaming over those big names. But the real big one I would like to see is Rudy Gobert from the Jazz. Patient he, zero. He is an unrestricted free agent, so there's no like team option or anything. His contract is up. He's not restricted. He's an unrestricted free agent, which bodes well for the Mavs because it's no more of this... Um, uh, restrictions. Yeah. Well, who was the guy that didn't sign? Who was the uh, uh, DeAndre Jordan? DeAndre Jordan. We yeah. don't have to deal with that shit. And then uh, he's also a two-time defending Defensive Player of the Year. He's won it twice now, two years in a row. So I think that the, he's one of those guys that I think that you can bring in and you can really get him for a good number mm-hmm. as long as they don't go too nuts this offseason trying to I wouldn't even try and sign too many big names just keep the team that you have together right now mm-hmm. because offensively they're killing it they just need help defensively and that's the that's the problem and I think that if you get someone like that that's that big piece that can really take you from being like he's not going to cost you too much offensively you know he might not be quite as good as 
as who he's replacing on the offense, but he's going to make up for it in defense. You're probably going to replace Dorian Vinny Smith <clears throat> as the, but that's a solid person that's coming off the bench there. That's saying uh, that, that that can shoot and he can defend. Yeah. So that would be a good little one-two punch whenever it comes to defensive. But you obviously have Rudy Gobert coming in playing on that starting line yeah. with Luka Doncic, Chris Porzingis, um, Seth Curry, and uh, uh, Dwight Powell. So that like that is a starting offense that you could really kind of look back on and say this is like the Mavs from the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, a lot of optimistic things to say about the Mavericks, even though they get bounced in the first round. Because whenever they lose to the Spurs again in the playoffs in twenty seventeen, it's just that's that's an old team with Dirk and Vince Carter and. Uh, those the, that that was a team that was trying to win now and just really didn't have enough. They 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 had lost Jason Kidd. They had lost um, uh, they had lost Tyson Chandler at that point. Lost Jason Terry. They had lost all of those like really pivotal like the big key pieces, pieces from the yeah, championship from the championship run. Yeah. And they were they were trying to hold on to that and they just couldn't. And it was fun. But now this team has a lot to like look forward to uh, in the future and in the present. So. If the Mavs can make the playoffs again next year, maybe make a better series out of the first game, maybe take it to a game seven, maybe even climb that hill. That would be really interesting to a potential unrestricted free agent that would want to win now. Yeah. The Mavs would be an absolute calling card because the Mavs aren't like you've got the Cowboys that that are that are that are that's respected around the league that players want to go to. The Mavs, you could argue, are one of those potential landing spots for unrestricted free agents that mm-hmm. want to come here because mm-hmm. it's not like this is a non-traditional basketball market. The Mavs have dominated, probably are probably you could argue are the number two team over the last twenty years in the Metroplex, and I think that everyone in the NBA kind of respects that, and I think that they'd want to come and play for a team like this. It's not like you're going to Orlando, yeah. Or you're going to Phoenix, Milwaukee, Milwaukee. Well, Milwaukee now, but like, how long were they so bad? You know, Minnesota, no, that's, that's, the Timberwolves. That's, that's, like, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It it's took Mil- a long Milwaukee time. now, but if if Giannis leaves, Milwaukee's back in the gutter. Yeah, I know. So like, like, so and the Mavs aren't a one trick pony. They have a starting five that's that was the best offense in the league. I can't, I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. So a lot of lot of lot of things to look forward to whenever it comes to. Uh, Whenever it comes to Mavericks basketball, so all right. So, what do you think, uh, Mavericks? Like a prediction next year? You think they make the playoffs? You think they make a second, third round? I think I think that they make the playoffs again. I I think that they kind of limp into it. I because yeah. I, I, I still think that their offense is going to be great. But the problem is, is if you're the best offense in NBA history. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna regress. Yeah, yeah I was about to say you, you can't you do that. Can't, two years you in a row. can't do that, and it's it's it is impossible. Even the even the 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 seventy three and nine, the seventy three and nine Warriors, they didn't do it, but they won a championship that next year. They didn't win a championship that year with the seven seventy three and nine team. Right, they lost to LeBron, but right. then they won the championship the next year because they got Kevin Durant. But even adding a piece like Kevin Durant, they still couldn't repeat those numbers. So they're gonna regress. I think that they come in. I think they still make the playoffs just because Luca's going to go nuts. And, yeah, Luca's, uh, Luca's going to Luca. Por, Porzingis is going to have enough time to kind of. It was just a meniscus tear. It wasn't like it was a an ACL or an MCL for Porzingis. 
Meniscus is still... It's still... Oh, it's still big, but, but it's, it's not it doesn't as take nearly big. As yes, long. absolutely. It doesn't take nearly as long. I think Porzingis is going to rehab and come back, and he's going to be strong. And just like I said, with his numbers being a little low, whenever the season started, it took a little time for him to find his game. In February, he found it, yeah. and he just went <clears throat> nuts. And Rick Carlisle realized it too and he had to change how he coached yeah, the team yeah. because he was used to the pick and roll offense that yeah. was his bread and butter and now it's not the thing anymore so I think that they still make the playoffs I think that they'll lose in the first round like last year but as long as Luca can Luca I think people are going to want to play with this guy yeah I don't hmm, I don't know as much about basketball as uh, as you do but I do tre- do tend to watch the playoffs and <clears throat> I just don't, yeah, like for the the reasons that you mentioned, I don't see them getting out of the first round either, but it also would really depend on who they play next year. It'll it'll probably be LA again. Uh, the, uh, not Clippers, the, it'll probably be the, the, the Lakers. The Lakers. It'll probably be the, the Lakers will be, the Lakers just, and the Clippers will all, Mavericks they'll, look. They'll, they'll be, they'll be battling for one and two again next year like they did this year because they'll still, the, that team will, all, all of that team will still be together. I'm sure that they're going to be missing some parts, but they're not missing their big parts. Yeah. So those two teams are going to be battling one and two. The Mavericks are going to be battling for eighth or seventh, maybe sixth place, like like they did this year. But I think that seventh or eighth in the West would be about about, about right. where where they would need <clears throat> to be. And and just as long as they can put up a fight in the first round, it. Uh, I think that the ownership needs to point at something and say, look, we're progressing in the right way. So if they can force a game seven next year Mm -hmm. against the Los Angeles Lakers and LeBron James and Anthony Davis and those guys, a team that is just far superior to them as a complete team, not offensively, obviously because of the numbers, but, but as a complete team, they're just far more superior. And if they could force a game seven, I think that that would be enough to entice a free agent to want to come and sign with them because it's like, we just need one more piece to get over that hump. Yeah. But if they do the same thing that they did this year or even miss the playoffs, that's just an utter failure. And then no one, I think it'll be harder to convince a free agent to come here. So it's kind of like they have to get into the playoffs and make it competitive. Yeah. So, I know that a lot of sports talk radio out in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex loves to talk about football, and they'll talk about the Rangers, they'll talk about the Mavs, every now and then they'll talk about the Stars, but one thing that no one ever really seems to talk about is FC Dallas. Nobody cares. And... The reason why is because a lot of people feel the same way that my co-host feels about, about soccer is how nobody cares. Terrible soccer is. But as an avid hockey fan, I see a lot of similarities between soccer and hockey. The, the, the two kind of go hand in hand together whenever it comes to how scoring is done, the amount of scoring. Um, Whenever it comes to assists, they have secondary assists, and no other sport has that except for hockey. Toughness. You have to... Okay, look. <laughs> we haven't even started the segment yet, but <laughs> here's the thing, is that, yes, does soccer have this history of flopping? Yes. In the European League, of course it does. Not so much in the MLS. If you watch the MLS, those guys play, and they play hard. Do they have floppers? Of course they do. The NBA has floppers. The NHL has floppers. The NFL has floppers like it's just it's just part of it. But there are a lot of really tough players and you have to be an extremely well conditioned athlete in order to play soccer. You run miles and miles and miles in the span of a game that never stops. It is always going. 
but it's soccer. So my my okay, but my okay. Here's the, here's the soccer. The soccer minute is not like we're both gonna discuss discuss soccer for a minute. It's uh, Cameron has one minute without me interjecting trash talk about soccer to convince us all that it's worth a damn. Not soccer, but FC Dallas. Okay, FC Dallas. FC Dallas. That's the one that, and I'm telling you, once COVID is finished. The first thing that everyone out there needs to do is go to an FC Dallas game. It is the most fun that you will ever have at a sporting event that is not NASCAR. I know that NASCAR is not a fun sport by itself, but um, the people and the atmosphere of NASCAR really make it so great. And it's the same thing at an FC Dallas game. the The fans are just insane. Uh, if if they seem if, if if it seems like you're not having a good time, they're gonna make sure that you have a good time. Shit, I didn't start the minute yet. It's fine. No, 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 no. I haven't even started yet. So here's what we're gonna do. Every week in the middle of the podcast, we're gonna have I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a soccer minute, and I'm gonna talk, and you're gonna listen, and then at the end of it, you're gonna give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down if I convinced you to watch the game this week. I'm just gonna treat this like a one minute intermission. I know I've been talking for the most part here, but whenever we get to the Rangers, you'll have tons to say about that. <laughs> so too much. To and without here. further ado, for all you FC Dallas fans that do not get <clears throat> the love and respect and the admiration that you deserve, I'm here for you. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So FC Dallas this year was one of the teams that did not start their uh, their tournament play because of COVID. They, they stopped playing, and uh, they, their first bit of action was not until the restart of the MLS season, whenever other teams were already getting experienced. And with that being said, they are still 14th in power rankings. So that's, that's middle of the pack whenever it comes to... Uh, Whenever it comes to the MLS people, their offense is very mediocre. 21st in shots, 17th in shots on target, 16th in goals, 6th in passes, and 6th in completed passes for an 83.1%. So they know how to pass, but they're very disciplined whenever it comes to defense. They, they're third in tackles attempt. They're tied for first in tackles succeeded at a 64.5%, but they're 22nd in fouls at 13.6%. Their next opponent is Minnesota. That's 10th in the power ranking, but their last loss was to Dallas 3-1 last week. Ooh, nice timing there. So what do you think? Did I convince you for this week? I wasn't paying attention. Ah, see, <laughs> this isn't going to be fair if you're not going to pay attention. You know no, what, you FC, know, I'm just, I FC just, Dallas people, no, you I'll, got my love, man. I'll... I'll, I'll I was paying attention. I was joking. Uh, I think <clears throat> not really for for one reason, and it's because if I'm going to get into a sport that I don't know and I don't understand from firsthand experience, slow defensive play is not necessarily going to be what is going to draw me to it. You know what I mean? I want goals, man. I want to see bicycle kicks and people – Goaling. I don't know what the soccer terms are. Okay, shoot me. Okay, but see, okay, to make a, to make a bit of a defense here, the Mavericks that we just talked about, number one offensive team, very very mediocre still, and yet we're still bounced in the first round. This team right here, the Dallas Stars, who we're going to talk about later, it's very boring hockey, but they're winning. If you're going to show up and you're going to have like a rooting interest, not I'm not saying to watch MLS, but you watch FC Dallas, you've got a team that you can root for, 
If the, it, it once they get a lead, they hold it. They hold that lead, and that's without one of their best defenders in Reggie Cannon, who's actually going to be departing FC Dallas to go play for overseas. So we'll have to see how that affects the team, but this team does have a history of beating the better teams in the MLS. They're just kind of trying to find their game whenever everyone else still had a chance to go play in the, it was like a Gold Cup tournament or something like that, and FC Dallas opted out against it because of the COVID thing. So once they start getting their feet underneath them and they play that good, hard-style defense, who knows where this team can go? Defense wins championships, and that's really why you're in this uh that's why you're in the, the the business of playing sports in the first place. So we will see, and we'll have we'll, we will be doing this every single week. I will be talking about FC Dallas. Have one minute to do it, and uh, so how did? Okay, so you never gave me an answer though. Did I convince you to watch the game <clears throat> this week against Minnesota? Yeah, I said no. Oh, did you? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, FC Dallas folks, I'm here for you, buddy. So. Are you going to watch the game against Minnesota? I'm going to find a way to find out how to watch it because I need, I need, if I want to talk about it, I need to watch it, aren't I? <laughs> All right, I'm going to take the next 10 minutes to tell you why the Rangers suck. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's pretty obvious. They can't score, they can't pitch, they can't field. First of all, before, before we get into this, can you tell, uh, like, will you explain what your, your background is in baseball just so that way you can kind of show people that you're not just simply a fan you have a history in this if you could just run down your well, baseball resume well I, okay so i didn't play professional baseball i had the opportunity but i turned it down to go to the navy because they had a baseball team and then they got rid of it like right after i got there and i was stuck but <clears throat> uh i played my whole life up until about 19 18 19 that's when i when i quit playing but uh, i was um, in and out of different uh, baseball academies and stuff, and one of the ones that I really stuck with was uh, Ray Burris, who's a he's a AAA or no, he's no longer AAA. He's uh, he's the rehab assignment for the Phillies. He, so he's the rehab pitching coach for the Phillies. And um, after that, I worked at a place called Swing City in Keller that is no longer around, but the uh, the main the the my main boss was a guy named Luis Ortiz who Rangers fans might recognize as the hitting coach for the Texas Rangers and they're not listening apparently <laughs> cuz i'm telling you okay so now we're going to go all right so the rangers the uh, yeah uh what i mean what good can you really say about the rangers this year at least they got an inning they got a whole ass inning from Corey Kluber uh, for six and a half million dollars. That's cool. And a million dollar opt out. Otherwise, they're going to be stuck with 18 million dollars next year if they want to keep him. Hooray! Joey Gallo's batting 183. Elvis Andrews batting 174. Those are two guys that you expect to be able to produce because they have supposedly proven themselves. Elvis Andrews, I don't know what's going on with him. He Two years ago, he was batting 300. You know, he was the one bright spot on the offense, and now he can't hit the ball. Um, you've got a lot of uh, younger players coming up, Leody Tavares and uh, and uh, Evan or not Eli White and and Nick Solak and Trevino and guys like that. They're gonna they're coming up and they're they're playing pretty well. So there's a little bit of hope for the future, uh, especially with uh, Luis Ortiz. He's got a he's really really good at. Uh, 
at explaining his hitting philosophy and really good at getting that out of people. I mean, there's a reason why he went so high in the Dodgers organization as a, as a hitting coach. Um, Might not have been the Dodgers, but he, he worked his way up as a hitting coach. When I worked for him, he just, he had just signed as the, uh, the roving hitting instructor for the Rangers minor league organization. So some of these guys he's seen before, you know, um, and basically his, his hitting philosophy when it comes to, hitting is he, he he's trying to get you in that sweet spot of power and contact and the way that he does that is the way he always explained it is your legs are like your power delivery system or your, your power generators and your hands are the delivery system and so if you're getting tight between your legs and your hands your legs are supposed to be tight your hands aren't right if you're getting tight between that you're losing power and you're probably going to lose contact as well so what do you what do you think the problem is? Why do you think that if if he's this successful hitting coach, obviously because he's worked his way up and he's earned his keep here, like what what is it about? What do you think it is that the players aren't listening to? I don't. Okay, so I said they're not listening. It, it oh, appears I mean, that they're not listening. I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, don't course, know. I don't know for sure that they're not listening. Do you think his job's in jeopardy? I don't know. I don't know. Because this is his first year, right? His first no second. This is his second year. Second year. Um. So, so you said two years ago Elvis was hitting 300, and now or, ever since Luis well, took no, over, la- he he was hitting well last year too. He okay, was okay. he was in the high twos last year. Um, do you think do you think that the COVID is the? I know that everyone's dealing with that shit say, right now. But. I would I would say the the biggest thing right now is taking COVID out of the out of the out equation. Of, I know COVID that I just out of said it, it yeah, but take but, that because they're all I, struggling with it. Right, that. but I would say right now that the biggest thing that is probably affecting the Rangers is, and we've gone round and round about this, it's the shift. And it's that if you look at the Rangers, they're very lefty heavy. They have a lot of left-handed batters, right? And a lot of those guys get the shift put on them. And... I don't know if it's a strategic thing. I'm not going to get into the philosophy behind whether you should bunt or not into the shift or to beat the shift. But I think that's a that's a huge thing that the Rangers as an organization are struggling to find an answer for. And most people in baseball are struggling to find an answer for the shift. Most left handed hitters, the the value of a left handed hitter in baseball has gone way down because people in general are like it's it's it, it's to the point where it's a compliment to a left-handed hitter if you're not putting the shift on him because most people are putting the shift on whereas with right-handed hitters you don't leave, you don't put a shift on unless they pull the ball a lot right so i i don't i think it's i think it's the the shift and the state of baseball as it is right now and you've got You've got some of the most progressive coaches in the league. I mean, with with Luis and Chris Woodward, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on their hitting coach, their pitching coach's name, but you ha- you have some some progressive coaches. I think that right now, as an organization, you weren't built for the league to make the changes that it did. You weren't built for the shift to become a thing. You know, the these other teams that are having success, like. Like your uh, Oakland and and others, these other teams, they're they're more granted they're more small ball, which I personally like. But and Oakland's always been that way. Oakland's always been that way. But look at look at them this year; they're killing it. They're killing it. 
Um, you know, and the National League teams, you don't really see a whole lot of... Well, National League, the National League as a whole is nothing but small ball. Like, Not especially, necessarily, especially but it in is, the later innings. Is, yeah, yes, whenever you yes, have to start getting it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. You ha- well, in the National League, you have to do small ball to, to even finish the game. In the major, le- in major leagues, ha, in the American League, you don't. Well, do you think that that's another reason why the American League, especially left, especially the Rangers this year, are struggling so much is because they don't have as much experience with the small ball? Because mm-hmm. it's, kind of, it's kind of turning the American League into more of a National League whenever it comes to the amount of small ball that they have to deal with. Well, so I would say... Yes and no, but let me look at look at where uh, I know yes and no is my favorite answer for anything. <laughs> Do I want steak? Well, yes and no. Just go. Just uh, anyway. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I, I made a face. That's my bad. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, you look at Chris Woodward. He came from the Dodgers. You know, he came from the National League. He's he's not he's not completely inexperienced when it comes to small ball, and most people aren't because you the the American League really is the only place in baseball that doesn't have a big emphasis on small ball. You, you College, high school, little leagues even, the way that you generate runs is not with power because you're talking about either, you know, 20-year-olds who haven't found their power yet or 18-year-olds who don't have it or kids who don't have it, you know what I mean? So you're you're going to score runs by getting somebody on base and manufacturing situations. But that's that's just because the the players that you with whom you played, they are not a Joey Gallo. They're not an Elvis Andrews. Right. Yeah. I bet you anything, Joey Gallo, Elvis Andrews, Rugnet Odor, any of those Willie Calhoun, any of the Senshu Chu, all those guys, if they whenever they were on their high school teams or their select teams whenever they were young, it was just all about power with them because they could probably get up there and I, of course I'm just speculating here mm-hmm. but they would get up there and they just rocket the ball just because they're throwing 78 mile an hour beach ball fastballs at them they're gonna go whack gone well so what I'm saying is you you would think that and it's not like nobody ever hits home runs in high school and clearly they hit home runs in college but when I'm saying they haven't they haven't discovered their power yet or they they don't have it yet I'm talking about like just the physical, uh, like muscular formation that happens between high school and being a full grown man. First of all, and then second of all, there is a technique. The quality to of it. coaches also come into yes, that yes, as well. Yes, like, it's I was not, about yeah, to say yeah, yeah. The, there is a technique to it that a lot of coaches don't know how to teach, and and that's what I was talking about with Luis Ortiz. He's he's really good at finding that balance, right? So, <clears throat> uh. So he's he's good at finding that balance. So he's good at teaching that. The problem, I think, really boils down to you've got maybe it's the philosophy of the organization or or what, but it, they seem committed to we brought guys like Joey Gallo in to hit dingers, and I mean. Granted, it was the coach before, but Jeff Bannister even said that. Like, we didn't bring Joey Gallo in to bunt. And you know what? Hey, cool. I, I understand not wanting to let the shift take away your baseball identity, but it would appear, granted, my my baseball experience stops before professional baseball. But I have a lot yeah, of experience. You had a tryout with the Tigers, though, didn't you? Yeah, but I have a lot of experience with people who have played professional baseball. Um, 
I mean, I worked with a lot of them, you know, and it seems like there is an emphasis on prioritizing who you want to be as a baseball player over winning the game. That's what it seems like from an outside looking in. And I don't think that's necessarily the problem with the Rangers in like specifically, but it seems like in general, you've got a lot of people who came up saying, this is how you win baseball games. This is how you win baseball games. This is how you win baseball games. And that's changing. And it seems like there are some players, some leagues that are behind the curve. Now, I'm not saying that the Rangers are never going to figure out how to win with the shift. I'm saying what I see right now is between the talent that they have on the field and the talent that they have in the dugout as far as coaches, and clearly John Daniels, I I am a John Daniels apologist. I like him. He brought the best Rangers team we've ever seen to town. So I like John Daniels. A lot of people give Nolan Ryan the credit for that. I don't. With the talent that you have and the coaches that you have and the organization that you have, the only explanation I can find for why the Rangers aren't winning is that they are behind the curve when it comes to figuring out things like sabermetrics and the shift. And because without the shift, or sorry, without sabermetrics, you don't have the shift. So without like Billy Bean and guys like that, you don't have the shift. (coughs) Because you don't have the numbers to support moving the players over like that. You know what I mean? Like you don't have that, that basis from which to make the decision that we need to take the shortstop and put them over on the right side of the field uh, over on the first base side. Okay. But see, but I've read countless articles. I don't have numbers in front of me, but I've I've read countless articles that says that the shift isn't really working anyway. So it just seems like that the shift works on specific players. <clears throat> or it seems like that Joey Gallo, it, like if you were to just take Joey Gallo, like if you want to see if the shift works and you look at Joey Gallo's numbers, it's, a it's, it's, it's an overwhelming yes. It's it's why wouldn't we just put that guy there forever? <laughs> okay, and see, <laughs> here's the thing though, is that, because we've discussed this Argued. We've, we've we, argued. We, we, have, we have discussed this like like for hours before about this, and it was, do you bring in a guy like Mark McGuire to hit bunts and just get on first base? Because he was that team's offense in 1998 whenever that home run battle between Sammy Sosa was, and, and I guess technically Ken Griffey Jr. until the end of the year, but whenever that home run battle was happening, like he was that team's offense. Sammy Sosa and the Cubs, they made the playoffs – and they they were more focused on I guess like the whole team dynamic because Winning. they had, they had a better team around them but they but they still unleashed Sammy Sosa like what if what if they were shifting on Sammy Sosa do you bunt with Sammy Sosa and just get him on first and you'd rather him be there like is that well, team in the same position that they're that well, they were in at the end of the year if Sammy the, Sosa's just bunting instead of the, hitting the home runs that's the thing is nobody bunts with a runner in scoring position so the problem is if they're if you're able to shift on Joey Gallo all day every day it's because nobody is in scoring position by the time he gets up so that's the issue that's what I'm talking about not necessarily Uh, making Joey Gallo bunt, although I do think there are situations that call for that. I think the bigger problem... And they've done it this year, though. Yeah, but... Right. I I just think... Anyway, we can get into that topic. It's it's just... I think it should happen more, but 
whatever. That's just my philosophy. But the, the issue is that there aren't enough people on base in scoring position for him when he gets up anyway. That's the thing. Is like If they're going to shift on Shinsu Chu and he's leading off, as a manager, I'm looking at it going, okay, I'll have him lay down a bunt, down the third baseline. If he gets to first, fine. Sack bunt or whatever, move him over to second. Now, if Joey Gallo's batting third, there's a runner on second, Joey Gallo's up, you can't shift. You, you know what I mean? So that's just that's just my baseball brain, but obviously so there are time, people that are making millions of dollars who don't think that. So see, because here's okay. So two two questions. First of all, not not okay. One question, one statement. First, the statement. I just feel like that those managers understand that they're practically giving him the base without walk without intentionally walking him. Yeah. And I think that there are in my naivete whenever it comes to baseball because I played all the way up until third grade and uh <laughs> and I played in the outfield because I stunk. And uh whenever you uh but see the way that I see it is that those managers see that they're practically <coughs> giving him the base and they decide against it and they tell him to swing away Merrill and whenever <laughs> whenever that Whenever a decision like that comes down from management, I look at that and say, well, they know more than I do, obviously. So they probably see something that we don't see, whatever is behind the scenes. So that's just how I see it. I hate the shift just as much as anyone else. And I love that the numbers are coming out saying that overall the shift isn't working so it's players like joey gallo who can probably change the system by bunting into it and just saying if you're going to shift then it's really not going to work anymore and so maybe that'll be something that would get it away but that just seems too easy i think in politics they call that a demagogue like the, like it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a simple solution to a complicated problem like of course it would be easy to just take that bunt and then take the base but there's whenever it comes to the game plan it's not a part of what they have in mind, but obviously it's not working, so something has to change. That's just the way that I look at it. So the question that I have is, is it time for the Rangers to have a fire sale? Because whenever whenever the Rangers just seem like that they're they're not this this year seems like the first year that they're so bad, but it always seemed like that. Over the last five years, there was always been, something that, that was hopeful. They've been good, always but a not reason to have great, hope. you know. And so it just seems like that now it's 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 very much like the Cowboys of the last decade, where there was constant mediocrity. It was the Stars ten years ago, whenever they would constantly, <clears throat> whenever they went. 10, 15 years without even making the playoffs, you know? And so they had this huge fire sale and got rid of all these players that we love so much, and then they're bringing in new talent. Is it that time for the Rangers, or is it too soon to make that prediction because this season is kind of shrouded in the COVID cloud? Well, that's the thing, is the Rangers do have a lot of young talent that is coming up, like like Trevino, Tavares, White, Solak... Uh, Kobe Allard, if you want to talk about even pitching talent, like they, they have young talent that's coming up. <clears throat> what, I, what it seems like is you see, you see a lot of Rangers fans that see guys like, uh, um, uh, Ruben, not, nah, um, uh, from the Padres. He had a couple grand slams on us. 
Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, uh, Fernando Tatis yeah, Jr. Fernando Tatis Jr. I was thinking Ruben Mateo Jr. We're Wrong not we're, Ranger. We're, okay, first uh, of all, we're not going to dive into that. We've already talked about the no, Rangers but, at nauseum. But yes, Fernando but, Tatis Jr. Fernando Tatis Jr. I'm saying like it seems like a lot of baseball fans are seeing that guy's success and saying, well, why aren't the Rangers giving our younger guys uh, a chance? And it's like if we had that guy, absolutely he'd be playing. Are you kidding? We don't have that guy. We don't. We have some young talent. We have some guys that could be solid solid players even maybe some stars but they're not at that level yet speaking of stars good segue there so first so first so rangers final the 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 final thing is we'll do rangers predictions here for the rest of the season and then uh we'll we'll move we'll move on to a team that knows how to win i hate you go ahead so my my rangers prediction where do they where do they stand right now oh uh, I believe they are last in the standings in the AL West. Let me double. Yep, they're last in the AL West. They're 11 and a half games back behind Oakland. <clears throat> so I don't see that changing. Just to be honest with you, I don't see that changing with the people. They got rid of some solid pieces that were helping them win games. Uh, and, you know, at this point, rightly so, like, what are you doing holding on to Todd Frazier and Mike Miner? They're they're helping you win games. Chirinos. Yeah, Chirinos. They're helping you win games, sure, but you're not going to win a championship this year. These are guys that are all of them in the point in the career where they belong on teams they can help win now. And, and you know, get what you can for them and, and let them go play somewhere else. So... When so it, when I don't. It, when, I don't. To, to answer your question, I don't see the Rangers moving up at all. I see them finishing dead last in the West. Um, at this point, I see them. Where do you see? I him? see them losing forty games out of a sixty-game season. When do you? Where do you see them in five years, though? If they have all this young talent, at what I know, I know that baseball is one of those weird sports where it's not like the NFL or the NBA, where it's so hard to predict a high draft. But if they have all this talent. Eventually, you got to think that they're going to move on from Elvis Andrews. Eventually, you got to think that they're going to move on from Rugnet Odor and Joey Gallo because those are going to be the guys that are fun to watch right now. But in the end, is their legacy? Well, right now, they're all three of the guys that you named are painful to watch. I know, I know, but see, but it's, they're the only ones that are drawing any kind of publicity whenever it comes to the Rangers because no one else is doing anything. Solak's doing really well. I know, but see, but no one, no one, like, but but he, he's, he's doing yeah, national, well, but he's not, but, he, not but you're not going to win games with Solak. People look at Joey Gallo and Elvis Andrews and those guys, if those had, are your core that you need to you win had, with. If you had 25 Solaks, you might be winning games, but <laughs> I get, I get what you're saying. Uh, I just, re- yeah, real quick, five years. Do you see them getting better or worse? Just one, one answer, well, better or worse? there's nowhere else to go but better. Okay, then there's optimism to look for right there for Rangers fans. But let's go ahead and let's talk about the meat of the Dallas-Fort Worth sports teams right here, and that is the the under-the-radar, the ever-impressive high-flying Dallas Stars. and The team that actually matters in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The team, the only team that matters, and shame on... Anyone who is not giving the stars the credit that they deserve right now because they deserve every single bit of it. And Mal, I would like you to do me a favor. Okay. Will you pull up the text message that I sent you? Hang on. During the are you are you already doing it? Uh, no, I wasn't, but I will pull up that text message that I sent you. 
during game seven. So while he's looking up all that, let's just kind of give like a quick little recap here. The Stars came into the bubble on a six-game losing streak. Lost to Vegas after having a three-to-nothing lead in the first period. They ended up losing five to three to that team. They lost to Colorado four to nothing whenever they had Pablo Francois, their backup, before Philip Grubauer was even injured. They lost to them four nothing. Then they came back and beat the struggling Blues two to one in overtime after not even scoring a goal until the final minute of the third period whenever they had Ben Bishop pulled and the net was empty. And then they ended up scoring and winning in a, not scoring, they ended up winning in a shootout. Not a lot of optimism going into the series with Calgary. And it started rough. They lost games one and two. And then came back with a vengeance and have not looked back since. Until Michael Hutchinson came in for Colorado in game five. And game six. And then game seven rolls around. And the Stars score early. Go up one nothing. Then less than a minute later... They well, go down. I, they go down. They they they. The Colorado scores it, makes it one one. This is important here. I want to I want to emphasize this. Colorado scores early after the goal, makes it one one, and then Alexiak has a turnover, makes it two to one in the first period, and then this is the text message that I sent you. I knew exactly which one you were talking about. Yeah, I know, too. I know, dude. You got you got to pull it up and you got to read it. And it I'm says, gonna fucking eat my words, and it's totally fine. And I'll I'll explain the text message you here said, in a second. You said it's done. You might as well turn it off. Uh, turn off the game. They get a lead, lose it in less than a minute and a half, and then a turnover in their own zone leads to an ad's goal. This team will forever be mediocre as long as Ben and Sagan are in charge. I'm fucking sick and tired of getting my hopes up for nothing. I would have rather they gotten swept. Here's the thing. You you go back you go back to 2015 2016 whenever it was the high flying Dallas Stars that'll beat you seven to six every fucking night of the week, number one team in the Western Conference, game seven, in the in uh, game seven in the second round of the playoffs the Stars get spanked seven to one by St Louis. Flashback to last year, they 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 take a step they end up winning game five and go up. Sorry, they end up winning game five and going up, or they end up winning, I'm so sorry, they end up winning game five and going up three to two, and then they lose game six to St. Louis, and then they lose game seven to St. Louis in that epic double overtime game that Pat Maroon just happened to tip in, not tip in, but he knocked in the shot that went up and over Ben Bishop's shoulder. There's a step in the right direction. They didn't get spanked, I guess, but yet again, they lose in the second round in a game seven to the St. Louis Blues. The St. Louis Blues ends up going on to win the Stanley Cup. I guess you can kind of hang your hat on that, that they took the chance to game seven, double overtime. Then you roll into game seven against Colorado, and their problem here, and we'll get into game one against Vegas the other night here, and this is where I noticed a difference, but they score, Radulov scores on that tip in early, and then they give it away in a minute, and then go down 2-1. This was the problem here, and it seemed like where the game was going, that Colorado was in full control here. <clears throat> and, it, and, and the problem really essentially was is that Colorado was down a goalie, their top defending defensor, de- defending defenseman, 
And so it seemed like that Colorado, everything was like scripted too perfectly for Colorado in order to go into this game and really truly lose it. And Dallas just still has yet to, I'd sent you a text message the night before talking about how that game seven was going to define the legacy of the Dallas Stars. Because I was talking, and I won't have you read that. I I was about to say, I would read it, but it's long. Don't read it, but it is long. But it was pretty much going to define Ben and Sagan's legacy. Were they going to be that, those, those core group of guys that, even though they had people around them. And Jamie Benn had a great series against Colorado. He did. Three goals, six assists. That's a monster series. Radulov, three goals, five assists. That's a monster series for both of those guys. And yet, it still seemed like it wasn't going to be good enough. And I, me, knowing nothing about hockey, I responded by saying, making a note of this text for future reference. And I ate my words because <laughs> a little a little fella from uh, Finland named Joel Kivivanta <laughs> ended up coming in and scoring two goals in regulation. His first two goals in... Uh, in an NHL playoff game because he was in to replace Andrew Cogliano, who is the Iron Man that never misses, never misses games ever. And you put in Joel Kiviranta, Mr. Mr. Finish call there. I don't know how you don't hear that and your heart doesn't get all warm and fuzzy inside because it, but from now on, that's what, that's how I'm going to refer to that guy. So comes in, does, does something that no one has done since Wayne Gretzky has done since he did it to Toronto. Yes, Toronto, you have to deal with this a little more, but he did it to Toronto in a game seven in 92, 93. And that's huge. And no one else has done that since then and he's only the fifth player in NHL history to do it the first rookie to ever do it what what are you what are you talking about oh i'm sorry scoring a hat trick in a game 7 in the playoffs ah yeah and that's those that that is elite company there that and so but anyway so D- dallas finally gets past that and i eat my words i absolutely eat my words on that one and i will take full i, I will take full ownership of that but during that moment, you have to understand the heartbreak because I was also at the game where they were, it was the 2013-2014 uh, playoffs whenever they were winning game six against Anaheim and Anaheim scored two goals. Corey Perry was on that team, by the way. <laughs> it's fucking Ryan Getzlaff, man. <laughs> they, they they scored two goals in less than a minute to lose Game Six. Whenever Kari Lettinen was in net, and you're just you just uh, look at that, and you're just like, God, oh, just more Kari Lettinen in. Oh, dude, it was just so upsetting. But now you can look at it, and you can say, Holy shit, this team is not only dominating. Whenever if you if you need to be outscored. They're going to outscore you. You put them on power plays, Colorado, 0 for 4. You mean long-handed? That night on the power play. Long-handed. Dallas was 2 for uh Dallas was 2 for 2 that night. Like that was the difference in the game. Yeah. That was the difference in the game right there. And so f- 
flash forward a little bit, they get their they they make their first trip to the Western Conference Finals since 2008. Whenever they got just slacked by the Detroit Red Wings, who ended up winning back to back Stanley Cups that year, uh, and so it was it was hard to beat that Detroit team with Steve Eiserman and all that. Like it, like you like you no one was going to beat that fucking team, but. The Stars make their first ever appearance, and they did not disappoint. And so, whenever uh, here's 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 some notes that I have here is that one of the things that the announcers were saying the other day against Vegas is that Jamie Ben was moved to the fourth line, and that that was kind of like an insult. And Jamie Ben was the person that was kind of being punished for not playing well. But as I just mentioned, Jamie Ben had three goals and six assists against the Colorado in the entire series. If you're not going to have Andrew Cogliano on that FCC line dubbed by razor perfectly because they shut you down. Uh, but if Cogliano is not going to be a part of that, who else would you rather be a part of that line? Of course, you're going to throw in Jamie Ben, And Jamie Ben came out in that first period and really took that role to heart. And I really hope that Cogliano, whenever he's finally ready to come back, kind of takes notes from Jamie Ben and sees how he was able to really play that game. But Jamie Ben was the only person, really the captain, that has to replace that person on that line. And he really came in and set the tone because that first pass that he had went right in front of the goal and Alexiak and I believe it was Blake Como were right there in the crease. And if one of them were in good position, the first pass of the game was from Jamie Benn and that could have led to a goal. Not just the first shot, but the first pass. Jamie Benn was that person who really came in and set the tone for that newly found FCC line. I guess the FCB line while Cogliano's out, but it's it was it was absolutely perfect. Jamie Benn came out. They, even though it was the fourth line, they started the game. They started the game, so it was not a punishment for Jamie Benn. Rick Bonus just had to have sat down with Jamie Benn and been like, look, I need you to take over for Cogliano on this line that has been so it's out of everything that the stars have ever had this season the only consistent line was the line of Foxa, Como and Cogliano. And how how I mean just to just to prove like how often does the fourth line get a nickname? You know what I mean? That's usually, how good they are. Yeah, they warranted a nickname. I know. Well, and usually they're the third line. Oh, okay. Usually yeah, usually they're the third line, but I think that whenever Rick Bonus came back from the COVID break, I think that he realized that the time of possession was so huge that they moved them down to the fourth line, and then they moved that fourth line up because they saw just, or they moved that fourth line up to the third line because they saw how much Hints and uh, Perry and Pavelski were really performing together, yeah. especially in that first round against Calgary. Perry, oh, yeah. uh, Pavelski, yes, everyone wants to talk about that because he had that hat trick. And he was scoring goals, getting assists. But Corey Perry <laughs> yeah, but was he, really that unsung hero. And Hintz had that goal that uh, that he ducked under. Yes, I know, I know. And so, but no one talks about just how well Corey Perry played in that first. Excuse me, in that first series against Calgary's, and it was huge that line. So you move them, and you move them to the third line, which now it's just all over the place. But the only consistent line all season was that FCC line. Thank you, Razor, for that nickname. So we'll remember that as we go on. So. Jamie Ben moving to the FCC line is not a punishment. If anything, it's it's a reward because he looks at him and he goes, "You're the only person that, that can, can really fill, fill this role." And he yeah. took it and ran with it because he did it in Game Seven and he did it in Game One against Colorado. Um, the 
Okay, the Klingberg goal. Let's talk about that for a second. Everyone really wants to talk about just how great Jamie Benn was on that play, and of course he was because he took the puck yeah, and went. He went from blue line to blue line, and he got the shot off. Like he received a pass from Foxa, went from blue line to blue line, got a shot off, and it was blocked, and went back to Klingberg, and Klingberg right place, right time, and fucking drills it. But. The main thing was, is, and this was the storyline for the Stars the entire game, was their forecheck. Yeah. Especially in the neutral zone, as the announcers just kept talking about at nauseum. And they deserve it, too, because Vegas was not able to get into their game. But if you watch, <clears throat> if you watch that play on Klingberg's goal, Essa Lindell came down and had a beautiful forecheck. He comes down... And Vegas is taking it into the zone. They enter the zone cleanly. And then here comes Essa Lindell from the point and inside and just takes his stick and just whacks it back. And it goes right to Foxa. And that's a play that no one is talking about today. But Essa Lindell is one of those guys. Everyone talks about how great Haskinen is and how great uh, Klingberg is. But if you still look at that top defensive pairing with how great Haskinen has been, it's still Klingberg and Lindell. Those guys are like... Peanut butter and jelly, man. You're not going to separate them. And as long as Essa Lindell is still on this team, Klingberg will always be on that top line. Because it's maybe eventually Haskinen will flip and Lindell will be with Haskinen. But the one consistent thing is Essa Lindell. And he's the guy that always knows how to make that right play. Mm-hmm. And he did on that Klingberg goal. And it's just something that not a lot of people are going to talk about. The one person who did not have a good game, though, was Jamie Alexiak, man. Like, he had at 2.15 of the first period, like 2.15 into the period, it was very reminiscent of Colorado's second goal that they scored in Game 7. Jamie, I don't know what Jamie Alexiak was seeing, but he did not see um, Nick Cousins. Oh, no, no, no. He did not see... Uh, yeah, yeah, that's who it was, Nick Cousins. He did not see Nick Cousins, and he tries to pass it out of his own zone into the neutral zone right onto Nick Cousins' stick. And he's coming in, and he's beating Jamie Alexiak. Oh, yeah. And here's the th- Dobby was in a perfect position to make that block, but you had William Carrier on the backside, and who makes a great defensive play to keep him from scoring? But Miro Haskinen, man. Like, that's... Ever, dude, he <laughs> is the... He really is that good. And he comes behind and just lifts his stick enough. And you can look and see Nick Cousins looking over. And as soon as Haskinen had his stick up, he was like, well, I've got to get a shot. Takes a shot. Dobby makes a routine save. So good for Haskinen. Um, Dobby, okay. I was talking about how giving up goals early was huge. Yeah. Especially that first shift after a goal. Oh, yeah. The most important shift. Oh, yeah. Anton Hudobin makes this save on, who was it? On Riley Smith, where if you if you look during the Colorado series, there a lot of the goals that they scored, Anton Hudobin just kind of sprawls out like this. And you can tell Hudobin is one of those very big personality kind yeah, of guys. Yeah. Where and, he, if, and if he doesn't know where it is, he acts like he doesn't know where it is. He sprawls. <laughs> he talks about just making himself big. And he just goes like this. And it's funny to see the goal go in whenever he goes like this. He just goes like, it goes by him and he looks and he just is like, shoulder shrugs. That's exactly what he did on that Riley Smith goal. He's fallen to the ice like this and he puts his hand out like that and lifts his shoulder and it just goes boop just right off of his right shoulder. And that was a that was maybe a minute and 10 seconds after Klingberg's goal. That was the difference in this game is that they kept them 
from going back down and evening up the series. And that was just it, that was just the uh, that was that first shift after that quick goal. And who does Riley Smith beat to get into that position? Jamie Alexiak. So Alexiak's not starting off with. Uh, with a good first period here. But he kind of comes back and helps himself. But if you really wanted to, just to kind of get the negative out of the way, Alexiak was that negative. Yeah. And he, we know he can play better because he had a phenomenal series against Calgary. Oh, yeah. And he had a phenomenal series against Colorado. Mm-hmm. And it was his trade, <clears throat> whenever he was traded to Pittsburgh and brought back, they had a deep playoff run whenever he was in Pittsburgh, and that just did so much for him. So look for Alexiak to that know that. Yeah. Look for Alexiak to know that and have a big game too. I, I, I like just just keep an eye out on number two whenever it comes to that. So here's the Stars' dominance right here. At 15:55 in the first period, Alex Tuck has a shot on goal and makes it four shots on goal for Vegas. They end the second period with nine. So between 15:55 of the first period, so not even five minutes into the first period, they have their fourth shot on goal. At the end of the second period, they end with nine. That's insane. That is absolutely insane. And here's, here's an even crazier stat. At 8:08 in the first, so 12 minutes and 52 seconds, Vegas wins their first faceoff. The stars went. I believe it was 8-0 in on the faceoff dot before Vegas finally won a faceoff. So it's not just the Stars won on the scoreboard, but they won in every aspect of that game. Um, but, I mean, as the uh, announcers felt obliged to point out, every chance they got, Vegas was also playing their third game in four days. Yeah, of course. And the Stars were playing their third game in five days. That one day off is huge. It is, especially this time of year and whenever it comes to uh, whenever it comes to uh, uh, whenever it comes to how much each game means. That's why you can go through if you were if you were to go through every game with a fine tooth comb like this in the regular season, you would be exhausted. Yeah, but you're you're also talking about a team. Both teams played two days, you know, two days prior. One team, granted, they were like, oh, well, you know, they had the early game, blah, blah, blah. But one team literally had to go uh, game seven into overtime, season on the line, the whole way back and forth. And the other team demolished their opponent. So you're you're talking about... On the scoreboard, it looks like that they demolished it. Vegas didn't score their first goal until 6.06 in the third period. Yeah, but... So Vancou- Vancouver, Demko Vancouver still- finished with 13 shots on goal. I know, I know, I know. Wow. And it was, what is and that other than demolishing them? I know, I know. And Vegas, and see, that's another thing, is that I have a note here that says that Vegas averaged 39 shots on goal in the second round. Uh, and they didn't, They in the second period against the Stars in game one, they didn't get their first shot on goal until 11-22 in the second so it's like I get that Vegas would be tired, but that's yeah, that's that not tired. that's not tired, man. That is no. just domination. And that's, if you that's as what I'm talking soon about. as the third period ended, Pete DeBoer just boom was already in the locker room. Like it, like as soon as it, and he came out and he said that they deserved what they got in the third period. Pete DeBoer is he was a coach that I wanted the Stars to get so badly because that guy. Tells it how it is and has worked with Joe Pavelski before in the past. Like it would, and, and every single team that he has coached, here's a stat for your ass. 
Every single team that he has coached in his first year has taken him to the Western Conference Finals or further. My ass will accept so that. So could stat. you could you imagine like what he could do with the stars? And I get why Jim Nail wouldn't do it because of everything that happened with Jim Montgomery early in the season. You don't you know, want them to have to learn a third coaches. Right. And you knew Pete DeBoer wasn't going to be available in this offseason. You knew he was going to get signed. It was amazing to think that he went to Vegas because of the rivalry that they have with San Jose. But I digress. Speaking of Joe Pavelski, he's a player that you need to keep an eye on this whole season because Joe Pavelski has 14 playoff games against Vegas in their three years in the league, and he has eight points. The Stars need him. They need Joe Pavelski to have a big series like he did in Calgary. I know that that's asking a hell of a lot from someone who probably is only here to really be like a like a piece of the puzzle, not the whole piece. But this is one of those series where it's like, Joe, we need you to find that this, gear, Well, this man. is what you brought him in for. Absolutely. And this people, is what you, you brought look him at, in for. Well, see, you want to look at the series against Calgary. He did his job. Corey Perry did his job. Corey yep. Perry's probably earned himself a two-year deal at the end of this season. I don't know if it's going to be with Dallas, but he's shown that. Oh, yeah, that with somebody. Yeah, with someone. Someone's going to give it. Not, they're not going to give him a five, six-year deal, no. but I'm sure they'll probably give him a two-year deal worth about three, four mil, and that's that's what he wants right now, and he'll finish his season, or is the, he'll finish his career that way. Maybe it'll be with Dallas. I think I'll be okay with that as long as it's something cheap, but the Stars have a lot of young talent right now that they don't have to worry about paying that. So, um. One thing that I do want to bring up is, though, is that at 15.04 in the second, Sagan had a slap shot in the slot. That's his bread, that's his yeah, bread and butter, man, and he, and he just drills it right into Flurry's chest. Flurry didn't have to make like this incredible save. Flurry's sliding across, and it just hits him right in the logo. Like, like Sagan, you've got to hit that shot. Like if you're if 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 we're paying you all this money and he just got rewarded this this last off season mm-hmm. with a deal and he took a hometown discount mm-hmm. and I, I truly believe that he only took that discount because he didn't want to make more money than Jamie Ben because Jamie Ben signed a contract two three years prior and it was before the market inflated as much as it did so Sagan could have gotten a lot more money and I think that him and Jamie Ben have such a good rapport not a rapport but a good yeah, relationship. Rapport. Rapport. Well, they they have such a good relationship now. They they established a good rapport and have this great relationship that I don't think that he wanted to make more than the captain. But even still, they're yeah. paying him a lot of money. You gotta sink that shot. That yeah. that that could have been the game, man. So you gotta watch for Sagan, and uh, if he's gonna get more opportunities like that, he's gotta drill him because if not, this is good. Like this is gonna be a quick series. Because they play, they won one nothing. You're not going to blank this team every night. You're you're going to have to score three, four goals mm-hmm. in order to beat this team <clears throat> consistently. If you got to beat them three more times, um, one 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 last one last couple of things that I want to mention here about the game here is that the stars. I don't know if you saw this stat: six hundred and fifty-one hits this postseason is the most in the NHL. So they took Vegas's game and instead of being alternative, and they took it. Back to him. Did you see John Klingberg's hit? Oh, dude. Oh, my God. And Kiviranta went right at Mark Stone Kiviranta. and knocked him out of the game for a little bit. Fucking little bitty Kiviranta. <laughs> like, they knocked his ass. He knocked Mark Stone out of the game for a little bit. Like, they're taking their game and just 
shoving it right back in their face. And they're like, we're not going to be bullied by you. Making it look mean. This is without Ryan Reeves, though. Yeah. So look for Vegas to come back and be even more physical whenever Ryan Reeves comes back. I'm going to look at this, and I think Vegas comes back and takes game two. And I honestly think that Vegas wins this series. I think that the Stars have done an amazing job, and they have just shattered all expectations. Did they beat Colorado because of injuries? Yes, but unapologetically so. If Colorado was healthy, not, I don't think that the Stars It's win not like that they series. set out to injure those guys. Though. No, of course not. And it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like they did it on purpose. This is hockey. Shit happens, man. Like, people mm-hmm. people are injured. The Stars like, are just lucky right now that yeah. none of Ben Bishop, first of all. But, and Dobby, with the exception of game one, he's been a little leaky mm-hmm. lately. And so his save percentage before last night was 909. Very mediocre. Not good. The Stars have had to bail him out a whole lot. Could yeah. you imagine if Ben Bishop... The yeah. entire Colorado series. Dude, I know. I know. And so, but, but with all that being said, even though Anton Hudobin saw very few shots on goal in those first two periods, the shots that he did see... Were good. Were legit shots. Yeah. It wasn't like he had to make little nothing saves. Towards the third period, believe it or not, they whenever they... Taking, were, they were taking any shot. They were, and they were easy. The, his third period, super easy. Any goalie that's worth his salt could make those saves. No one was in front of him. Vegas was just up there just being like, we're just going to fucking throw shots on net. And whenever they did it, Dobby was there and he made the saves. But those first two periods, the few shots that they did get on goal were quality shots. And mm-hmm. they were really good. And who who else didn't have an easy night was Marc-Andre Fleury. He gave up the first shot on net, but all the rest of the saves... Flurry. Yes, Flurry. Yes. Uh whenever uh he, he had what he had an amazing game. Obviously, you only give up one goal, it's great, but it like all like the stars were a, down there, they were getting shots. It was the first shot on goal. I know. Too. And, so and you, you you really you think about it, like other than that, dude had an amazing game. Flurry did his job, man. Yeah. Flurry's night was not easy. Dobby's night was not easy. Um one okay. So a couple of cool little stats that I want to bring out here is that Dallas and Colorado was the sixth highest scoring series in playoff history. Wow. Yes. I didn't know that. I know. Isn't that that fucking crazy? Um, Dickinson, even though on paper he did not have a good game, he was the unsung hero of that game that night. He was the one that was everywhere, making hits, getting passes, forechecking. He was that guy in the neutral zone that was not letting Vegas beat him. It was almost like Dickinson knew that in game two, he was going to have to face Ryan Reeves and it wasn't going to be this easy and they weren't going to let this opportunity slip by him. So if Dickinson keeps playing the same way that he played in game one, look for him to score a lot of goals this series. One thing that I cannot stand in hockey is that if you ice the puck, you cannot change players. Yeah, dude. Okay, okay, yeah. And I hate that the announcer said this. I hate that the announcer... Because now it makes it seem like that I'm the one that... I'm just piggybacking off of this. I have been saying this for years. If you have a pulled goalie and you ice the puck, you shouldn't be allowed to put the goalie in net. You ice the puck, you can't change. Sorry, your net's empty. If we win this draw, goal, it's on. It's it, Like, it's done. You can't change any of the other players. Why do you get to put the goalie back in? It's bullshit. So, Gary Bettman... I know you're listening. Get on that. <laughs> and then finally, finally, one last thing that I do want to say is how good 
was Antoine Roussel for Vancouver in that series against Vegas. Like, he's he's one of those guys that in Dallas, we love Antoine Roussel. He's one of those players that would really just get in your ass and not ever relinquish that. Like, he, 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 he is that piece of shit that you fucking hate to hate. You just, you, like, there's nothing about him He's that you... That, that, Corey Perry dude, before Corey oh Perry. Oh, my God, dude. For he, us, at least. He really was. And whenever he let... You don't pay him that money. You don't. He got, like, four years, 25 million. Like, and, and he, on that team, was third line at best. And so you don't give him that money. You have to let him walk. But he has been everything that Vancouver has wanted him to be and more. If it wasn't for Roussel... And Patrick, Patrick, and Thatcher Demko, obviously. But if it wasn't for Roussel, that that series doesn't go to Game Seven. And I think that Vancouver is set up for a long time. And I think that they're going to give Roussel more money whenever his contract is up here soon. And he has deserved it and earned every penny of it. And I'm so happy for Antoine Roussel. I really wish that Vancouver would have found a way to beat Vegas because number one, Vegas scares the shit out of me because they (laughs) are that good. And number two, it would have been great to see how Antoine Roussel would have brought his Roussel-ness to his former teammates. That would have been fun to watch. But I'm very happy for Antoine Roussel and he's about to get paid fat and he deserves it. So... Are you? That's that's your spin. On that's the stars. that's that's my spin for the stars on game one. Game two is obviously going to be tomorrow night, and then game one of the Eastern Conference Finals is tonight. Well, so we're pro- by the time, uh, by the time we release this, it'll probably be game two of the stars tonight, and uh, the Eastern Conference game one will have happened already. Yes, more than like well, game game one for the Eastern Conference Finals it starts in four minutes. But who knows? But so that'll be that'll be a series in and of itself. But I still think Tampa takes that one, and I think Vegas takes the series from the Stars in six. In six, okay. I think I think Vegas takes it in six. I think that the Stars did what they needed to do, and it there's first of all there's no shame in losing to this team because I think that everyone's going to lose to this team because I think Vegas is the Stanley Cup champs. Can the Stars beat Vegas? They proved it last night that they can. So this is going to be a hard-fought series. I don't see this being a series where people get blown out. I think that this is going to be a very rough and tough blue-collar series that somehow, some way, ends in like 2-1. Like the Stars are going to make Vegas beat them physically. Mm-hmm. And they can. And they, mm-hmm. prob- they probably will. Uh, and if they do lose, this is going to be one of those things where you look at it and you're just like, hey, they took that next step. And yep. they had to do it. <clears throat> I'm a little bit more optimistic. I personally, granted, you know hockey more than I do, and I haven't been following hockey nearly as long. But personally, what I see is the Stars are a team that can beat you any way you ask. They can put up seven. They can beat you one nothing. You know what I mean? Like they they're a team. They can beat you with speed. They can beat you with physicality. They can beat you with offense or defense. They can clamp down. They can control the puck. They don't have to control the puck. It does play in their favor when they do, but they don't have to in order to win. Now, granted, granted, against Vegas, they're going to have to play a certain way, but they've already proven that they can play that way and they can win that way. I personally think Dallas takes it in seven. See, that'd be great. It's just the thing is, is that I would feel a little bit more optimistic if they would have beaten them 3 nothing. 
But since they only beat them one nothing, and I know that the Stars had their chances, and they're not going to see Flurry again. It's going to be Leonard. Leonard's going to be a net for Game Two. You can bank on that. I don't have any confirmation, but the only reason why they start Flurry is because they they played so many nights in a row, and they knew that it was kind of like the Stars starting Bishop in Game Five whenever they were up three one. Like, <clears throat> of course, it's like you can take that risk. If it doesn't work, then that's fine. And it was the same gamble that they took in Game One. Yes, if we lose Game One, it sucks, and you you have a better odds on chance statistically to win the series if you win Game One. But in the end, if you if you lose Game One, it's not the end of the world. So they right. they needed to give Leonard a night off. Leonard was never truly tested against Vancouver except for that one phenomenal glove save that he made on on uh, Brock Besser, which what the fuck? Like that's like that's probably the best save of uh, the playoffs. It was no Mark Andre Fleury against Toronto with his Superman save. Oh man! But uh, but Robin Leonard, <clears throat> that was a great save, and that dude can play. And we'll see what happens now. Whenever he starts Game Two, my biggest thing is I don't think you can ride Anton Hudobin to a cup. I, I think you need Ben Bishop to win the cup. I know that he didn't look good in the other game, in the one game that he played against Colorado, but he was rusty. He hadn't played since the round robin, and I guess his injury was still aggravating him because right after that game, he was still he he went he was marked down to unfit to play. Mm. So whatever was bothering him was still bothering him in that moment. So now Bonus knows that you can't start him until he's 100%. And I think that with how leaky that Dobby's been uh, against Colorado, I think that it only is going to continue going forward against Vegas. And I, it would not surprise me if Vegas comes back and rattles off four straight after this. And they, and they win in five. But even if that does happen, this is still a winning season for the Stars. They took that next step. And I think that this is going to be enticing to a lot of players. Please, for the love of God, not Taylor Hall. But a lot of players <laughs> that are hitting the open market this year and possibly wanting to re-sign, even though I don't think that the Stars do that. I think that they let Yanmark walk at the end of this year and they let Kivi Ranta come in and take over for Yanmark. Because then you've also got Jason Robinson down in the AHL, who is a point machine. And then you've got Ty Delandria, who I was critical whenever they drafted him at that draft in Dallas. And I, I, I think it single-handedly killed Vinnie Paul because it's like, who is Ty Delandria? But that dude can play. He's He is really, really good. And it gives you a lot of optimism whenever you've got Hintz, Giryanov, Kivi Ranta, uh, Haskinen, Jake Ottinger looks good in the AHL. So it, the the future's great for this team, and the present is good for this team. So I think that there's going to be a lot of players that are going to be really interested in wanting to come and help this team now that they've taken that next step. Can they beat Vegas? Yes. Will I be surprised if they do? No, I won't. If they can beat Colorado, who was my pick to win the cup, they can beat anyone. And I think if they do beat Vegas, I'm not going to be surprised. I'm going to be ecstatic. I'm not going to be surprised by it. But I just think that Vegas coming back with Ryan Reeves, putting Robin Leonard back in net, who is their number one, Marc-Andre Fleury with all that, all the crap that's gone on with his agent during these playoffs, could be considered a distraction. So we'll see what happens in game two. That's really going to set the tone. If they, can, if they can continue playing the way that they played in game one, obviously they're going to win every game. If you keep them from scoring, you win. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, I don't but think yeah, they're going to shut them up for no, the whole yeah, series. I don't, I, and see, you can't. Not no. this team. Not with Matt Pacioretty, Mark Stone. Uh, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Riley Smith, uh, <laughs> all those guys. I don't know why I just gapped on the players here, but like that team is built to win and win a lot and win physically. And now that Ryan Reeves is coming back, we'll see what happens. But it's a very exciting time to be a Stars fan because I think that before COVID, if the season kept playing off, or kept playing out the way that it was going, the Stars don't make the playoffs because they were riding a six-game losing streak going into it, collapsing like the Stars always do at the end of the season. They got a chance. They saved themselves. They didn't have to play in a play-in series. They were able to take it easy in the round robin. And now here we are in the Western Conference Finals. So by the time this airs, we'll be watching it, and we'll see what happens. Next week, we'll have several different games to discuss. I won't be talking about one game at nauseum, but... That one game, very exciting, and it's 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 you have there, no, there was a lot to unpack. Oh there. my gosh! And for a, like, for a one nothing game, a lot happened. If you want to talk about a perfect game, they won the power play, they won the face off battle, they won the hitting battle, they won the goal scoring battle, they won everything. You put like if you want to look at a perfect hockey game, that was it. Is it boring to win one nothing? Yes, but we don't give a shit. As long as they're winning, that's all that matters. So, predictions. I think that Vegas takes game two. Game three can be up in the air. <clears throat> I'm riding... Dude, no, I'm riding it. I think I think the Stars take game one. Or, sorry, game two. Ha! Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb say they win game one. But <laughs> I think the Stars... I think the Stars win game two. Uh, I don't think... I think it goes to overtime, and I think they win four to three. Man, you think you think Robin Leonard's going to give up four goals? Well, I mean, he might because, like, see, here's the thing: he was ne- he was never really tested. Like, he saw 13 shots on goal in Vancouver in one game. So, right, right, and Vancouver doesn't have the guys like like we've rattled I know, off. We, I know they don't have Ben Sagan, Hints, you know, like, Pavelski, uh, Pavelski, Haskinen. They've they, got Quinn Hughes. They've got uh, but, Elias Peterson. They've got Brock Besser. They've got they've got players, man. Got, they're just young. They, they've they're got, just young. Yeah, they got they're players. Really young, but, really young team. But I mean, they don't have Skorianov, dude. Oh I mean, my god, <laughs> you did it! You did it! I'll take just, it though. Just, I'll take it though, man. I just don't think I don't think Vancouver has the the same amount of speed of their from their offensive weapons as Dallas. And does. it's weird to say that about Dallas because before the season they, there was not like on paper you would look at it and be like, how are they not scoring more goals? They were they were the only team that was worse than them with offensive goals per game was Detroit, and Detroit won like twelve games all year. So you look at this team and how they're playing in the postseason. This is how you thought that they would play during the regular season. It just took them time. And I think that the 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 COVID thing helped so much because Rick Bonus had all that time to kind of look and say, here's where we need to change. Yeah. And it looks like it worked. Yeah. So far. So, so far. Yeah. So far. So far it's it's looking but, like it's working just fine. But I agree with you. I do think Dobby is not you're I mean, it's it's not it's not the nineties anymore. You know what I mean? You can't have a guy between the pipes every game. And win the cup, you know, like they're Ed Belfort doesn't exist anymore. So you have to, you, if they want to win the series, they're gonna have to get Ben or not Ben. Uh, they're gonna have to get Ben Bishop. I mean, he's gonna have to be healthy. I I know they can't control that, but he's gonna have to be healthy for them to win the series. And it's I just don't hard. Think, it's just so hard to think like when when you throw him into a series because it's. Are you going to go up three one on Vegas? I don't think so, man. It's gonna. I think you're going to trade if, blows here. And, if he's healthy, I think you go game two. Oh man, I don't. I don't. I think. I think right now you stick with Dobby until 
until he's shown that he consistently can't do it because Anton Hudobin is one of those players. He'll give up one or two like gross goals early, but then he refocuses and he does such a good job at forgetting what just happened. I mean, that game six elimination game against Calgary was the perfect example, three, nothing. And then nothing else got by him the rest of the game. And then the offense came in and helped him and, so we'll we'll see, but yeah, I just, it's just so hard to think that you ride Anton Hudobin the whole way. But when is it okay to start Ben Bishop? Because his last start was not good. Not good. It was not good, no. and there was no pressure on that game. So if he's ready to go, game five, and the series is tied two two, I, I don't see how you go back to Ben Bishop. No, no, that's what I'm saying. To, I think yeah. I think I what I'm saying is I think if he's healthy, the earlier the better. I just to, don't just it, to be honest. Yeah. You know oh I mean? no. If, I, he's, if yeah. he's healthy now, if he's not. I don't, I don't see. Well, I, I don't see you getting past the, the Vegas, but I also don't see a time for him to be past game three. I don't think there's a time for you to put him in. Yeah, I, it's just, it's just all gonna. First of all, Bishop has to be fit to play. That's yeah. the first thing. And for all intents and purposes, right now, Bishop is not one of those players. But right now, it's it, this is one of those things where it's a good problem to have. We have two amazing goalies. Who's more amazing? And then we'll go with them. So. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's not we'll, like when we had Letton and the Emmy. Yes. Oh my God, dude. Ben Bishop's <laughs> mask looks better than those two did. The, his glow in the dark mask is amazing. So, with that, we'll we'll wrap up the the stars talk with as exciting as it is. Uh, we'll wrap it up. I think uh, game two is going to be that pivotal game. If the stars can take game two, go up to nothing, then I think the stars take the series. The problem is I don't think that they do. I think that they lose to Vegas, and I think Vegas gets back to their f- overly physical ways with Ryan Reeves in, with the history that they have with Ryan Reeves as an organization whenever he was in St. Louis. Uh, I, I just think that Ryan Reeves comes in, finds a spark. You put Leonard back in the pipes. That ignites a spark because he is clearly the number one, regardless whether he was tested or not. He's clearly the number one, and I think the team – as, as a whole in Vegas plays better with Leonard and net. So it'll all just depend on who takes the series or who takes game two. And that might be your indication on who takes the series and how it looks. If it's close and it, it goes to overtime and one team wins and the other one doesn't, then it's, it's up in the air. And then it's going to be the series that I think it's going to be. It's going to be back and forth and trading games and stuff like that. But if one team comes out and dominates, then we've got something completely different to talk about next week. Yeah. And this episode went a little bit longer than I think it'll normally go, uh, strictly because. How often do you have a team in the in, well, in the in the Western well, Conference Finals? Well, that man? that and that and, like, we're not normally going to be in a situation where we have four teams who are either about to play or have recently played, or are still playing. And what else do we have to talk about right now? Because right, right. And we haven't even, we didn't even touch college football. No, we haven't. Because. So. The only, no, the we only, don't even know what's only, going on with that. Well, I, I mean, the only take you need for the uh, the for TCU is that they should have fired Patterson when it came out that he said the N word. But we're gonna gloss over that. We'll 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 talk about that later on. And yeah, that'll be we'll talk. We'll touch on that next week. We'll touch on we'll, that next we'll, week. Well, maybe not Gary Patterson and the N word, but. We'll, college we'll, football. We'll, we'll talk about college, college football. football. Well, the first first week is this week. So yes, it is. We'll yes, it is. So we we'll will actually have about. stuff to talk about with because with COVID and everything, I know that that's that, that's low hanging fruit. But who knows what it's going to look like until we actually see it on the field? And once once it's done and it happens, then then we can kind of assess from there. 
So, but with all that being said, I think that that's this is a good time to kind of hit stopping point on episode numeral uno of the Drunken Fan. Uh, be sure to tune in, watch FC Dallas this week, and uh, be sure to root for the stars because this is very exciting time. Who knows whenever we're going to be able to get like this again? Maybe 2008 was a long fucking time ago. And now we're 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 they're in the same position that they were then, and it's just as exciting. So enjoy this moment, whether they move on or not. Uh, this is just still fun to be a fan. The Mavs are looking really good. The Cowboys, there's reasons to be optimistic. Rangers, there was 2011, I guess. <laughs> well, until then, uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. How do we need to sign off? Like I think we need a sign, like a sign off. Obviously, not now. We'll get there. We'll, we'll 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 figure out something. We also need to work on an intro too. I know we have yeah. the music, but we will uh courtesy of the two guys here sitting talking about the podcast. So you're welcome for the theme song and uh we'll work we'll work on an intro and an exit for next week and we'll see what happens. Should we flare it out? No, we're not.